the minor prophets, we're the end of the Old Testament era, and we're going to be in the book of Ezra. So I am going to tell you where we're going so that you know where we're going this morning. Uh, I am just teaching on the first couple chapters, chapters of Ezra, which you can look up in your own scripture. That will be the main um, couple chapters, the first few that we'll be looking at. And so we're going to look at uh, a couple key concepts. One of them is the sovereignty of God. So you should see that in there. I'll touch on man's sinfulness a little bit, another key uh, point. But it will be mainly God's sovereignty and our response. So we're going to see those two uh, themes throughout. And there might be some audience participation in stories. I have a lot of stories in my mind, and some of them are your stories. So I may uh, ask you to share them. Um, but this is a story about uh, people. And so we're a people, and we're going through a transition. So we may hear some stories uh, from our own group as well. So uh, Don started us a couple weeks ago, and Don has said he can make those charts available. They were very helpful for me, just kind of an outline of them. Old Testament, so we'll have those in the back on a regular basis. And uh, Jim taught last week, and Jim, the the, the um, Don and Jim are going to be looking more at the prophets for a couple reasons. We're looking at this group. This is the group that is after the exile, so it's a remnant who moves and goes somewhere. And we're in a similar stage as a church. Good to look at. Another concept is that we want to try to understand how the prophets functioned in the scripture. There are key to how God moved and, and shepherded his people, and we want to learn more about it. So we're starting with those prophets, and then we'll come into the New Testament eventually and talk about um, prophecy and what, where that fits in potentially. But for now, this is what we're focusing on. My job is the historical um, center lane here, uh, so that's what I'm going to do. We're trying this teaching this way. Uh, it's a little more difficult than when we did Luke, just so you know. So we're sorting it out um, the best way to do it. And I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to go ahead and get started. Michaela, you can put the first scripture up on the screen if you want. Lord, thank you for preserving the scripture. We are many, many centuries after these events, and yet we can read with confidence particulars of the things that happened there, Lord. And we want to come out of this time with a clearer picture of you, a greater desire to trust in you and your sovereignty, a deeper understanding of your purpose, and um, finally the third concept will be focusing on worship. So I pray in the midst of all the stories and interactions uh, that we will uh, stay focused on your truth, on your sovereignty, and, and our response, Lord. May we honor you as a church. May we rejoice to be together. And may your spirit guide us in all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, we have uh, in the audience now, um, now that Jam is before, so there are people potentially from age eight, and I have had someone in here 88. We have 8 to 88 in this room. So we have to keep in mind we have a broad range of, of people here. And so kids, this is a story for you. You, you can um, just, so concepts, you have concepts. The, how many of you kids have been on a water ride at an amusement park? Raise your hand if your kid has been on a water ride. Okay, good. 
So one picture I want you to have is, is your life with Jesus like the water ride where you just have to get in and keep your hands inside the car at all times and smile for the picture when you go back? You guys know how you do that, right? Or is life with Jesus more like a canoe ride on the big river? Okay. So kids, if you have that question and your parents can ask you afterwards because you have to decide this. It's going to impact the way you live the decades that you have. So kids, it'd be a fair question for your parents to say, what do you think? Which of those is more describing the way you think it means to follow Jesus? The water ride or canoe in the open river? And then as I talk about history, that word alone will put a few of you kids to sleep. Just that word. But if you think of story and people's stories, Maybe it won't. So this is a story, and then we actually come into it. I mean, in the future and present, we're part of the story. So this story that we're looking at is a, is a story of a people, and this is how God approached his people. So i got to give you another story. When you guys read the Old Testament, kids, do you generally think of God as happy or mad? How does he see you? When he's talking to people, he, sometimes he seems kind of mad, right? Because especially in the prophets, what we call the prophets, Isaiah and all, he seems kind of angry. And so here's a story I've told before, but you're going to need to have it because I don't know all the kids were in the room. Two scenarios. Um, one, you show up, you meet us like at Karen House. We'll be there next week, and a big team of people will meet us, and they'll meet our family, and they may think highly of us maybe after just a week, and they decide to come to Lynchburg and stay with us. And let's say it's years ago when we had little kids. Imagine you're a college student that met us and thought, wow, these people, we want to hang out with them. They come to Lynchburg, and they're going to stay with us for a couple weeks. And they, they walk in the door, and a, one of our kids is a two-and-a-half-year-old and puts a mark on the wall with a marker, and they see me flip out. That's it, kids. You're going to your room. Get up in your room. I don't want to see you till the morning. And you're just standing there with your suitcase. And you're thinking, this might have been a mistake. Those laid-back people we saw in Mexico are not so laid-back. I'm glad I'm not their kid. Right? You might be thinking that. So, same scene. You walk in the door. The kid puts a marker in the wall. Only now, you've been living with us for two months. And the two months leading up to it, you saw this. The kid put a mark on the wall, and I said, oh. Next day, did another one. I said, mm. Another one, another one. Finally, after about 10, I'm up to like, oh, you know, buddy, I'd rather you didn't do that. And then another one, another one, and finally, look, you know, there's going to be consequences here. Um, taking away your blue crayon, if you do that. And he takes away the blue and starts with the red. And keeps going every day, marking up all the walls around and I said look you know if you do it again it's gonna be, it's gonna be time out you got five minutes you're gonna have to sit and so we just go and you are standing there watching this and now you stay, come in the door from the coffee shop and see me and he puts the mark on the wall and I finally say that's it up to your room what are you thinking now you're thinking these, I would have punished that kid months ago, right? The only thing that changed is when you walked in on the scene. 
That's all that changed. So when you look at the Old Testament, we are mostly walking in, when you read the prophets, when the kid has been marking up the wall for a very long time. So if we judge Kirsten and I based on how we respond, you got to know the history or else you miss it. And the same is true with humans, by the way, when we give advice. It helps if we know what they're going through. We don't always make our snap assessments correctly. So when we're in the Old Testament, kids, they've been marking up the wall forever, forever. And so this passage just shows you that. And it's a picture of God. He said, um, you know, he sends warnings and messengers. There's a neat picture there, second line, rising up early and sending them. You get the, you know, he's trying hard to, to go after them with compassion. And then, um, but what they do, they mock the messengers of God and despise his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed the young man with the sword and, and in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or young woman or the aged or the weak, and he gave them all into his hand. So this is like the last crayon um, and the last punishment. And if you read the Old Testament, you will see God gives warnings, and it's a series of punishments that he says, if you go into the promised land, if you start disobeying, the, these small things are going to happen. Your crops aren't going to work out. The last thing, and I'm going to ask for volunteers, but I bet you some of you know a teenager who's gotten so bad that their parents have kicked him out of the house. That is not their intention when they drove down um, Rivermont coming out of Virginia Baptist with that baby. But it can get so bad, 15, 15 16 years later, they have to kick their kid out of their house. I had a dad tell me one time I had to do it. I was tired of sleeping under with my hands on the keys under my pillow, lest my teenage son take the car. So we had to kick him out. That was not his plan when, the, when he was a baby. So it can get to that point, and God warns them that it's a long warning, and he's very patient, but the last thing is they'll get kicked out of the land, and that's what happens here. Um, right before this story, they're kicked out of the land. And so that's why they're taken captive. It's because they didn't obey. So Michaela, you can flip to the next one. And here's where we're jumping into Ezra, okay? So um, it says, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So I'm just gonna pause there. Michaela, can you go forward one? This is the one of the words of Jeremiah. Um, but he talks about, um, this is one of the things that he will do for the last one. He says, I'll cause their captives to return. Do you see that? And we'll have mercy on them. So that is one of the words of Jeremiah that he could be referring to. They've been in Babylon for a while, for decades, and they're remembering the promise that after all the worst punishments, after you get kicked out of the house, after you're um, you know, taken captive, that that last line that's there, it says, for I will cause the captives to return. So that's what, I need to go back, Michaela. That's one of the words of Jeremiah. It says, um, so in the first year of Cyprus, that the word of the mouth of Jeremiah. One of the things that reminds you the importance of scripture, even back then, you know, they were getting their truth and orienting their lives based on what the scripture had taught them. And this was the scripture of Jeremiah. So it says, um, the Lord stirred up Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, thus says the king of Persia, 
all the kings of the earth of heaven, uh, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So imagine the shock of the, of the Jewish exiles having this come out, okay? Um, Cyrus is not a Babylonian. The Babylonians took him captive. The Persians took over from them. And bam, this is happening. And they're thinking, you know, depending on when they were taken captive, might be 50 years later, might be more, depending on when. So it's a long time they've been sitting there captive. All of a sudden, this pops out. Now, we know some stuff about Cyrus. They found, they used to write things on stone. And in, in England, they have a stone cylinder like that has... Uh, records of what this very Cyrus did. And lest we think too much of Cyrus, this was his strategy, it seems, that he would uh, conquer kingdoms and then let them worship their own gods. So it's clear from that stone that he did this with other nations as well, as well lest we give him like too much credit. I don't know that he wasn't following God, but it also seems that he did this for other nations as well. And so one of the questions um, for all of us to think about and kids, you in particular, as you get ready to live out your life, do you think God interacts with the universe and us right now, or do you think of God as more a clock, as a clockmaker God that just winds it up and lets you guys live your life? And regardless of what you think, how do you live? Do you live as if God just wound it up and we live out our time here, or do you see God as interacting with the world and with you as an individual? And there's some roadblocks that might get in your way, so I want to point them out. Uh, when I became a believer, it was in a very small circle, like a Bible study. It was like a life group that I went to. And I didn't know many Christians because I went right back to college. So I didn't know how many there were. And then I went to this big conference, this, and there were Christians all over. And I was excited, but then it kind of threw me off because I thought, how could God listen to like all of our prayers here? So you may have that as a roadblock. The size of the universe might be a problem for you in terms of thinking God interacts with you. We don't need to worry about that. God is infinitely more powerful. We have five children. We keep track of them. Um, if I can keep track of five, God can keep track of all of you. So you don't have to be limited by that, but that's a roadblock. Could be you've seen too much. Maybe you're getting older and you have seen too much of how the world really works, and that now blocks you. Maybe that's something that you need to pray through. Or maybe you know too much. Maybe you know too much about how the world works. Those things can block you from believing the truth that God interacts with you. So um, you're going to have to decide just how to reconcile those things in your life. And um, I want to ask a question. If, if anybody, I think of somebody, so Jay, I'm going to ask you. Have you ever seen, so we have this political situation, a, a governing official who opened the door for a kingdom work. Have you, what can you tell me that you saw? Did you stand up, Jay? Go ahead.
The question is, are we going to respond? You know, do we have a role in responding to the Lord? So one of the concepts that, um, that we have to keep in mind is that core, the core doctrine, remember that idea of the pier that I did? And that um, imagine this pier going up here and the poles, telephone poles get driven into the ground. Uh, we've talked about the atonement a couple weeks ago. We talked about I think, the humanity of Christ. The, the next pole I want to tap on is the sovereignty of God. We've got to trust that God is sovereign in this universe. So before I talk about us working out our salvation, I want to tap on this pole of us being, God is sovereign. He's going to do what he's going to do. A key aspect of my faith, what allows me to walk out on the water, so to speak, into life, is knowing that God is sovereign. He is in control. And with this analogy that I'm trying to do, remember how the pillars are the main doctrines, and the catwalks were kind of our priorities and preferences. And I think this will help us, because people are asking, what, what's this church going to be about? You know, new people are coming, you guys. I appreciate new people coming. Just to give you a sense that think of the peer, the core pillars first. And I was talking to Matt Torrance about this, and he said, it's interesting. If you approach the peer from the water, all you see are the catwalks. Like, all you see is, oh, you know, they're interested in that, or they're interested in this. If you approach it from land, you walk out on the pillars first. So I would encourage you, if you're looking at our church, walk out on the core doctrines first before you look at our priorities and preferences. Some of them are just preferences. Like man camp was awesome. We had 50-some people there that were at man camp. It was a blast. I mean, things were going on all over the place. It was fun. It was, um, there was potato launching. There was hatchet throwing. There was skeet shooting. Now, those are our preferences. Nowhere in the Bible that says when a portion of your church gathers, thou must launch potatoes. It's not in there. It's, it's just a preference. I don't know why we like launching potatoes, but we've been doing it for decades now. And I think we're a little better. Um, but it's still different. If you were a new believer and you showed up on Saturday and father and son were kneeling down by these tubes and spraying and then whoom, this thing shoots out, you would think, huh, I never thought this was a key part of being a Jesus follower, but it must be. So that's just a preference. We don't have to launch the tickets. A priority might be missions. So I think I saw Tim Ingalls. Are you here, Tim? Tim, you and Rebecca's there too. So um, we're excited to have a few extra weeks with Tim and Rebecca before they head out. Um, next week at nine o'clock, they have years of history. There's a chance to go hear them, show up at nine in, in one of the classrooms and listen to their story. That's a priority for us. So we want, that's one of our catwalks. If you come to Grace and walk down this thing, you're gonna see catwalks out to missions. And next week, if you want to walk out on that catwalk, they're doing it. Um, hear about it, you can talk to them today. That's an example, that's one of our priorities. Now, not every church does missions like we do or as much as we do. That's fine, um, it'd be a good idea, but that's us. So when you start looking at who Grace is, look at the pillars, look at the catwalks, and evaluate it, but evaluate it from the main pier. So, um, 
this idea that as you're as you're grounded on the sovereignty of God, God's going to do what He's going to do in the universe, whether I get off and out of my bed and participate or not. Um, there is this sense that He's um, we've been predestined, as it says. Um, it says according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So, kids, I'm back to you. Then, does this mean it's the water ride? I mean, if God's going to do what he's going to do, do I just have to get in the water thing, sit back, put the safety bar on, and keep my hands in and smile for the picture? Is that what this means? Um, the next one says down there, you know, for Acts um, 2, uh, it definitely, this talking about Jesus, it says Jesus being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Um, you were taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. So, God is, it's God's plan to do that, to put Jesus to death. So Jesus is our example. You know, what do you think, one of the questions is, what are some of his purposes for you? Do you think he actually has purposes for you in particular? All right, Michaela, next one. Um, so we're back to the story of Cyrus. Okay, so I told you we'd jump around, but we're going to go back in there. And so this is what happens. Cyrus' decree goes out, and then... Um, people talk about it. So I want you to envision it. They thought there were one nation of exiles. There were actually two groups in there. And they just didn't know it. It was the Italbies and the Yabbats. So kids, you have to remember that. Italbies and the Yabbats. They thought, they didn't know that it existed, but they heard about this thing, and people started talking about it at the soccer games and things like that, and in the park and at the market. Hey, Cyrus has opened up a return for uh, to, to Judah. We can go back. So the Italbies, they were excited. They came home, they're like, it'll be great. It'll be awesome, we're gonna get to go back to the actual place. It, it'll, we'll get to go, it'll be great, we'll get to see new places, we'll get to see walking, we'll get, it'll be great, we'll meet new people. And the Yabbats, the Yabbats were like, yeah, but, I mean, it's a long way. Um, I, mean, I, just, I just got promoted, and we just refinanced here, I mean, I, I, I got the soccer channel. It's the Persian Empire Cup in like six weeks. I'm not, I'm, I just started serving Dunkin' Donuts at the donkey supply store. I, I don't need to go. I, let me read about it. So the Yabbats and the Italbees had it out. And if there was a Yabbat and an be in the same marriage, there was some tension, okay? So the Yabbats and the Italbees set it out. I have to guess most of the Yabbats stayed home and most of the Italbees went on the walk. It was a long walk, hundreds and hundreds of miles. And they, um, they do it. The heads of the households, um, they arose to go up. Now, I just want you to think, it may have taken four months to walk. That's a long walk. Going, and the Yabba said, yeah, but when we get there, where are we gonna stay? Yeah, but what's gonna be my job? Yeah, but, I mean, do they have sheets all along the way, or around the Arabian Desert? Do they do, do they do that? Have you checked? I don't know. I don't know how they do that. You know, what am I, I mean, get my second cup of coffee on this thing? So there was tension. These are real people that had real marriages, that had real kids, that had real plans for the life, and they probably had settled into life in captivity. And it doesn't seem like it was that awful. And the reason why I say that so it says, all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold. So they weren't in like a prison camp. I mean, you think of some of the stuff from World War II, and you think of those prison camps. 
you didn't have articles of gold and livestock. So we can assume from this that they had established some rhythm of normal life, and there would be plenty of people that could say, ah, uh, I don't want to go back. And some of them did. Okay. Um, did I One thing I want to point out, too, um, later in that chapter 2, further down verse 69, it says that um, they gave according to their ability. And I just want to encourage you, you know, some of you are checking the church out, that's fine. Um, but when you get to the point either here or somewhere else, just encourage you to give um, something. It, there's a key part of participation that actually has giving, even if it's a very small amount, and it's true here. So the people that didn't go, they still participated by giving. Okay, next one. Um, so this is where um, highlighted the idea that we have to participate, just like the Italy's and the Yabots had to decide whether they were going or not. We've got to um, talk about what it means for us. Um, so this is Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So, do you think um, working out your salvation means you earn it? Is it possible, according to this verse, that I can just do things under my own effort and save myself? I think that's what it's saying. I don't. I don't think if you compare it with Scripture, um, as we talked about the atonement, it, it doesn't. But there's some aspect of working out your salvation. You're not earning it. You guys have probably heard this quote that the grace of God is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. There's nothing in there that says we don't have to do anything. Um, but you can live it out. If you really believe if God's moving in, in a world around us, you're going to live differently. If you see your walk with Jesus, kids, as the canoe, as the canoe ride, it's a different kind of adventure than if you just sit in it and you think it's the water ride at the amusement park. If you think it's the canoe ride, abiding in Christ means something different because you're going to be facing different things. It's about the adventure, knowing that Jesus is in your boat. And do you live that way? Or do we live in this very limited box um, that sometimes we build our own little water rides and say, this is life. I've got my ducks set up around me, and I'm just riding out my decades here. Do you really think that God is living with you, that it's his good pleasure? It says God works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do you think he's, this is what he wants to do? You to live your life. You to go to school where you're going. You to live in the neighborhood you're in, doing the job. that. You, do you think God takes pleasure in you doing that well? Because that's what the scripture says. And do you live that way? Do we live that way tomorrow morning? Do we see that as something God is working through us to manage the universe and draw people into his kingdom? Or do we just sit in the canoe ride and wait for the, uh, sit in the water ride and wait for the picture? Okay, Michaela. Um, so I wanted to point this out just as a reminder of a little pier we have to tap on. There's a factor in all of this, and it's human sin. So this is James. Just in your idea of God being in charge, I want to make it clear. God doesn't tempt anyone. This is, this is James talking about it and says, um, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. Because God cannot be tempted, or, because God cannot be tempted by evil. 
nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires. And then when the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Those little seeds of thought that get in your head that you need to keep out, um, they start little, but that's not God. Um, we've got to own that, and we've got to confess it and kick it out, because that is a part of the world we're in. That's one of the pillars we walk on. I've got to remember that man is sinful, that I am sinful, and that my tendency is going to be to sin. I've got to keep that in mind in this picture. All right, next one. All right, so in the Old Testament, sometimes as we read it, there's like a bunch of names, and you think, uh, I might skip over that, be tempted to. Uh, we're not going to read all of them, but there are some names in here, and these are the people who went back. Now, Ezra is writing this. I think Ezra's writing about 60 years later after this. Imagine what it would be like um, to read your family name in it. We just went to Ellis Island, and I got to see in the ship's log when my great-great-grandfather came over from Ireland. It was really cool. So it's a little bit like that. If you're reading it when Ezra speaks, these are your grandparents that you're reading about. But my name is in there. So there is a sense of real people that we are connecting to a story. So these group that Ezra writes to, that most of these people are dead now. But they're their ancestors, and they want to read about it. And I just want you to keep in mind, we are passing on. Jay talked about the building over here. Lord willing, long after we're in heaven, there will be people worshiping God in this structure that we create. We have the unique opportunity. I, what I've learned, and I'm, I haven't verified it, but I don't think anything's ever been built over there. And one of the initial researches was it was part of the King's Grant, that land over there. So we may be the first ones to build a worship space and worship over there. And we're going to be part of that and setting something up that may last for centuries as a place where people worship. It's going to be awesome. Imagine the joy in Revelation. I don't know how much people that are in the, um, you know, with Jesus now see what's going on. But in Revelation, there's a little peek that sometimes they do. Imagine what it would be like for us if 100 years from now, some of us get together and we see what's going on in that building. And we go, remember we had set up chairs every week? And Remember we did all that stuff? Remember we were waiting for the easement? And now look, we get to be part of it. All right, um, next one. All right, so, um, so this is uh, an interesting little turn here. It, we don't know exactly when they got there, so we don't know exactly how long it took, but it seems to be pretty soon after in my like, reckoning of the days that um, they walked there. Again, hundreds and hundreds of miles. Think about how you guys feel after a road trip. We just went to Ohio last weekend for Kirsten's um, stepfather's funeral. So many of you have driven through those West Virginia mountains, you know. Imagine getting at the end of a long trip and that feeling you have when you're home. Um, if you're a Yabbat, like me, like a Hobbit, um, when the venture's over, you will hear me say something like, I am never getting in the car again. Because I'm a Hobbit. Like they said, adventures, they're nasty things. They make you late for supper. That's me, okay? I'd probably rather read about it by the wood stove than do it. So they travel hundreds of miles. The Ilbees are probably tired themselves, but they're still pretty stirred up. The Yabats are just wanting to set up the rhythm of life. I'm done with this travel thing. They get into their cities, 
But then they get called to Jerusalem. Can you imagine the conversation? The Italy's, if they had a nap or two, they're ready. They're like, this is going to be great. We're going to Jerusalem. The Yabbats are saying, yeah, but we're going to do the Feast of, you know, the booze. Like, that's commemorating this journey. We just did a bigger journey than they even did originally. Isn't that good enough? I mean, do we have to, like, we haven't done this in decades. Can, can this count? Can we rain check and do it next year? Because they don't want to get up and go to Jerusalem. We don't know how far away it was. Imagine Jerusalem. The last thing we hear about that, it had been destroyed. Burnt rocks, like, no coffee shops, I don't imagine. It, it's not going to be what it was in the, when they read about it anyway. It's a disaster. You think about what happens afterwards. So to go to Jerusalem was just not fun, I don't imagine. Especially if your kid just started sleeping through the night. You're like, okay. Um, so they go to Jerusalem, and they build this altar. And we learned Zerubbabel was the leader at this time, what he did. So the altar would have been shocking for us kids. Um, if you were looking at it, you hadn't grown up with all the sacrifices. So they sacrificed animals on this altar, lots of them. And it would have been intense for us. And you would, you would have been set aback a little bit. Um, but it would remind you right off the bat that there is a problem for humans, and it's sin. And you're getting that before they do the temple, before they do anything, the altar doing this sacrifice would point out that the humans are sinful, and that is what got us in this trouble. And we're going to remember that. That's the first thing they remember is the sinfulness of man. So they could have not gone. Um, we could not go to church. We have a, for, for our ministry, we, we, we um, have lots of churches come. I was at one in Baltimore a couple months in the spring. And they had a, a Bible study, large Bible study, and they showed this thing, this video on virtual church. I don't know if anyone's seen it. I wish I had paid more attention, but but they showed this video of the guy gets up and he puts on the you know the virtual goggles, and he, it was an advertisement for virtual church. He said, you don't even have to get out of bed. You just lay in your bed. You put the virtual things on. If you want casual, dressed up, you turn the dial and they fit you in the clothes that you want to be in. Um, then the next setting was who you want to see around you, you know, people like you. You could change that. If you want to feel like you're in a different group, you could change that. Um, the sermon, you could set the dial of conviction that you wanted. Um, you could pick only your favorite worship songs and just set the dial. You didn't even have to lift your head off the pillow. And it, it was, you know, I wish I could remember more of it, but that was the gist of it. And we, we had that. We, we, we went to our living rooms for church. It was a really neat time that I think we'll all remember that we made it through that. But uh, some of that carries over. Like, not that we have to go to church every Sunday. It's not a guilt trip. Um, and I think some of that was good to get shattered a little bit, you know, that you don't have to. Um, but Hebrews talks about um, we need to keep coming. Um, we need to be with real people. Some of you guys that have worked remotely know that eventually you've got to see some other humans and not just move from your living room to your kitchen to your... Uh, we were made to be in community. And so um, Hebrews 10, uh, 24 and 25 is something that sticks with me because it talks about holding fast to our confession of faith, consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, and don't forsake the assembly of one another. He's 
warning us that. So holding fast to the confession of faith. Someone in here, I am pretty, someone from this church told me a story about falling in the water by a pier as a kid and hugging it. And I'm thinking it was you, Deb. Was that, you remember that one? Like falling, someone told me they fell as a little child and they didn't know what to do. So they were on the lake and they knew their dad was up on the dock. So they just hugged the pier and waited for dad to show up. And that's what we're talking about, is like holding fast to our confession of faith. So we need to hold fast to those pillars that are here. Sovereignty of God, atonement. We'll get a few more of them out there. That's what we need to hold fast to. We need to consider one another. When you come here, are you thinking about the other people? Are you asking the kind of questions, how's your life going? Walking up and meeting new people, stirring us up to love. Our society is surprisingly isolated. It really is, you know, and we like our freedom. We like to not be like inconvenient, but then we end up really alone. So coming here, are we stirring each other up by example, just by caring, just by seeing one another? And then we just, it's easy not to come to church. It's just easy. It's easy to go home and not try the curry cook-off. Just come over there for 10 minutes. You leave after that. Try, if this is where you're coming, try to get to know the people here because it's a great group. And I've been encouraged in my walk, but I know there's more we can do to get to know um, one another. So uh, fear comes upon them from the people around them. They set the altar down, they did that. Okay, I mentioned that. Then they keep this feast of um, tabernacles as it's written. Even though we face opposition, we still need to worship. Fear is in us. Um, and you may have felt it for your kids, for the future. Um, fear is a human thing. You can, it doesn't work to sit and try not to think about the scary thing. You've got to fill it with something else. You have to drive it out. And the thing that God ordained to drive it out is worship. That's what he wants us to do. Come and worship and get out of the mindset of just managing your own little kingdom. Because your kingdoms may be like a person in a tub with ping pong balls, and you're just trying to keep them all below the water. And as soon as you get one, you got it all straight, and then your kid's braces break. You're like, ah, all right, I gotta get over to the orthodox. The car breaks down. If all your life is is keeping the ping pong balls of your kingdom down, you're not gonna win. God didn't design you to spend all your time just managing your own little kingdom, and then at the end going, I'm glad I made it. We're not here to live out that song, wake me up when it's all over. You know that one? Wake me up when it's all over. That's just a waste of life. We're here to ride a canoe. We're here to walk with God. He knows we're fearful. The things they were afraid of are not what we're afraid of. The things when next Sunday we'll be in Mexico and I'll be teaching in the church, they are, they are not afraid of the same things we are afraid of. If I told them, we haven't had running water yet. We have big tanks, no running water. If I said, next week, you're gonna have hot running water and you'll be able to take a real shower, they would think, this is great. What can you possibly be upset about if you have running water? We all know that running water is not the key to happiness. Human beings always need like one more thing to be just so. And God knows what we need. He knows we're frail, but he also knows you gotta come and worship on a regular basis. Because it's the only thing that is really gonna drive it out 
And even missions is going to come to an end. One day, there'll be no work in missions. But we will still be worshiping. If you think about that. We will still be worshiping. Fighting sin one day will not be a thing. We'll be beyond that. But we'll still be worshiping. That's who we are. Let me pray for us. And then, um, Eric, if you want to come up. And then, Don... Um, if you're here, if you can pray for them at the end, Don, um, where are you, Don? Oh, back there. And then just mention something about to pray through it um, right before you pray for them. Is that all right? All right. Come on up here. Lord, this is from Deuteronomy 30. Lord, give us the desire and the ability to follow your way for us. Your truth is not too high in the heavens for us to receive. It is near to us in our hearts and our mouths. May we have the good sense to follow you and trust in your truth. Amen.